Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Esther, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. to open to Esther, where we'll be today, and you can pull your sermon outline out as well. Oh, thanks, Joey. Appreciate that. Uh, all right, so I'm going to tell you guys a story, and you tell me which story it is. A girl with a heart of gold is pushed down by pay- painful experiences in life. She scraps by by hard work and virtue, but no one notices her. A villain actively keeps her from experiencing joy in her life. But then one day, her beauty and her charm is finally recognized. It's not just anyone who notices, but her beauty actually captivates a charming prince. She's swept off her feet, and she becomes a princess, and they live happily ever after in beautiful dresses. (laughs) Which story is that? All the stories. It's Cinderella, it's Snow White, it's Sleeping Beauty, it's all the Disney stories from my childhood, right? Is that Esther's story? Is that what Esther is? Is Esther the Bible princess story, right? Should this be made into the next animated Disney film? <laughs> so, well, I think if, if we see Esther just as a biblical version of Cinderella, we're missing a big part of what the Bible has to teach us in the story today. Today we're going to talk about Esther and what makes her story so different from those saccharine Disney animated features is that what happens when Esther becomes the princess, or in this case becomes the queen? Instead of just being a passive recipient of male attention, Queen Esther makes an important shift about midway through the book, and it's a shift that I really want you to pay attention to. It's a shift from being just the recipient of attention and the passive submissive figure that we see at the beginning to the grown-up queen. And it really raises this question. Once she's in the castle, what is she going to do with her power? And why did God put her in the castle in the first place? For Esther, her response to those things are going to define her destiny. It's going to define who she is and what she stands for and what she saves her people over. Now, most of us are not going to ever have the level of influence or power that Esther did. A couple weeks ago, I made the mistake of saying none of us here are queens, and I got some pushback. Uh, (laughs) But all of us can learn from Esther's example, right? We can all learn from Esther's uh, recognition of the way that God has organized her life for such a time as this, for this pivotal moment. And we all are going to face decisions like Esther faced. Will we take the opportunities in front of us that God has ordained, God has brought together in order for us to serve others? Or are we going to retreat into positions of safety and comfort rather than risking something to, as that song we just sang, 
walk out among the waters to follow where God has led us. So that's what we're going to talk about today in Esther. A quick orientation to the book of Esther in your Bible. Um, It's one of the youngest books of the Old Testament. It's written probably somewhere around 450 to 400 BC. Uh, It's written by an anonymous author. We don't know who actually wrote it down the first time, but it's a brilliant description of life for the Jewish people when they're in exile in Persia. About 50 years, 60 years has gone by since the events that we talked about last week in Nehemiah and before that in Ezra. They've rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed. They've rebuilt the city walls of Jerusalem. But Israel's influence in the world is still still in a very low point. It's one of 127 provinces that make up the Persian Empire at this time. Persia rules everything from Ethiopia to modern-day India and everything in between. And Israel is just one small fish in this big pond of the Persian Empire. And at the center of the Persian Empire is the citadel of Susa. We talked about this a little bit last week with Nehemiah. And the citadel there, or we might think of it as the capital in our language today, is ruled by a capricious and foolish king that we'll see throughout the story. Um, And I've been working on the name all week, and I still haven't gotten it right. Let's see here. King Asuerus. Sure. None of you guys speak Persian. Let's just go with that one. (laughs) And, uh, And this king is heavily invested in everything staying the way that it always has been. You know, when you're on the top of the hill, why do you want the hill to move, right? And so he wants to show off how powerful he is, how influential he is. And uh, his current queen, a woman named Vashti, is embarrassed by his actions and refuses to submit to him. And this is sort of the inciting event of the whole book of Esther. Vashti refuses her king and husband's uh, directions. And he and the people around him say, we cannot let this stand. If the Persian Empire stands for anything, it needs to be for social hierarchy and keeping women in their place. And so they depose Queen Vashti and go looking for a new queen who will be submissive and will do what she's told. Now, if your hackles are up already, take it up with King Ahasuerus, not not with me, right? Um, And so they identify this beautiful, passive, submissive girl named Esther. And the king falls for her in part because of her very submissiveness. This is the first coincidence, or what seems like a coincidence, that happens in Esther's story. One of a long series of, how did we get here except for the hand of God? And from a human perspective, we can see the reasons why, right? The king wants to find a submissive, quiet wife who won't stand up to him the way Vashti does. Spoiler alert, that does not work out well for him. But from a theological standpoint, we see that it's God's hand who, long before it's needed, is going to put the pieces in place to carry out what he desires to accomplish. God's providence is in sharp contrast to the king. The king's a foolish man who makes foolish laws and doesn't even really know what's happening around him. And yet God is the one who organizes all uh, that needs to happen. The second coincidence shows up in chapter 2 when Esther is chosen as the queen. And this is the line from Esther 2, 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. I love that line. It was Esther's feast. Like, was it? I mean, it was kind of like she was the the centerpiece, right? Like, look, we've now found someone to replace Ashti who won't stand up to me anymore, and we're going to celebrate her. And Esther kind of wins this beauty pageant, for lack of a better term. She, uh, she's Miss Persia and becomes the one who has 
all this privilege, but not really any authority. In fact, the very way that she gets into this position is by showing how docile she is. She submits to her cousin, Mordecai, who's like a father figure in her life. She submits to the eunuch who runs the harem, and ultimately she'll submit to the king. Now, again, before you get mad at me, or before you get mad at God, more importantly, um, there's going to be a really important character arc in Esther's life where a lot of the things that are part of her early life are not going to be part of how she views the world later on in the story. So um, if this is making you uncomfortable, just I, I get that, I'm with you, but, but there'll be some shifts later on in the story. Esther succeeds in really this godless, oppressive system. And, you know, in some senses, you wouldn't blame Esther for saying, yeah, this maybe isn't how it's supposed to be, but it worked out pretty well for me, right? I came out pretty well ahead, you know, at least, at least I'm the queen. But her cousin Mordecai is going to succeed for the very reasons that, that uh, Esther could fail. You know, Esther is succeeding because she's submissive and because she blends in. She doesn't tell anyone she's Jewish. She doesn't really tell anyone her opinions on anything. Now, Mordecai is going to go the other direction. He's going to stand up and stand out because the next figure we meet in the story is a wicked man named Haman. The first thing we learn about Haman in chapter 3 is that he's an Agagite, which means he comes from the ancient people of uh, King Agag, who, if you want to read more in 1 Samuel about how, in 1 Samuel 15, about how... Uh, about how Mordecai's uh, ancestor Saul fails to stand up to the Agagites, you get the backstory for why uh, Mordecai's actions here are so important. So Haman, and by the way, if we were celebrating the Jewish holiday of Purim, what do you guys do when, when I mention Haman's name? Anyone know? Boo. boo. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to cheer every time you say Mordecai and boo every time you say Haman. And if you get confused, just boo any time in my sermon. You don't like it. That's fine. <laughs> No, 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 don't do that. I actually have very thin skin. Um. <laughs> All right, so we meet Haman, and we learn that he's from a people that has long opposed the people of God. Now, that doesn't intrinsically make him a bad guy, right? He could choose to make a different decision, but we're sort of tipped off on the front end that Haman's probably going to be someone who's in opposition to God's people. And we quickly find out that that's true, right? He's promoted to the role of prime minister over Persia, and his initial goal is to have everyone bow down to him and show him maybe respect, maybe worship, depending on how you want to translate that word. Is it idolatry? I don't know. It's borderline, but it's certainly not something that a faithful Jewish person like Mordecai is going to do. After all, uh, he comes from a line of people whose great mistake under Saul, King Saul in Israel, was not standing up to the Agagites. And there's no way Mordecai is going to make that same mistake twice. And so uh, Haman burns with anger over this slight to his honor. And as most petty narcissistic people do, he takes this slight way overboard. Look at Esther 3, 5, and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of King King Ahasuerus. Here we go. So what's going on? Haman decides that the only response to this embarrassment of not having Mordecai bow down before him is not just that he can kill Mordecai. That'd be too easy, right? As every Bond villain knows, you've got to make it hard. Um, but he's got to kill all the people of Mordecai, all the Jewish people. And he's going to regain his honor by wiping out a whole nation to destroy how powerful he really is. 
Now, this gets to the core question of Esther's story, right? Do God's people need to be afraid? In a modern world like the, like the Empire of Persia, do God's people need to hide and blend in in order to make it in the world? Can you be faithful to God in the midst of great powers and opposition, or are you just going to get squashed by the boot of the wicked? This has been a question throughout the Old Testament. This is a question throughout Israel's history, and it's a question in the church today. Can Christians be faithful to God and succeed, or are they need to compromise in order to make it in this world? You know, if I was Esther and Mordecai, a lot of this would seem so wildly out of control. I mean, to go from, if I'm Esther, going from uh, being an orphan who's just trying to make it in the world to being queen, that's a, a wild ride. To go as Mordecai from being someone who's honored in the king's court, who has a death warrant on his head and all of his people's head, that would be wild. And I would think this is totally out of control. And yet we see that God has put all these pieces in place himself. That Esther's become queen for a reason and that Mordecai's defiance will be used for good as well. This is what we call the providence of God in Christian theology. It's that nothing happens outside the hands of God. The Heidelberg Catechism defines providence as the almighty and everywhere present power of God. Or, you know, we might think of it as the fact that God has the whole world in his hands, right? You guys remember that song from VBS as kids? The whole world in his hands. Okay. Got the whole world in his hands. No, all right? Okay, good. I'm going to keep singing until someone nods. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate it. Now, there's a lot we could say about providence. It's an important theme in the Bible. But in Esther, in particular, it teaches us a couple things about providence. One is that the, God's providence extends to everywhere in the world, that there is no nation too strong to oppose God, that there is no place that God is not uh, ruler over. As Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch on the world that God does not claim this is mine, right? That, that everywhere is under the authority and power of God. And that secondly, in God's providence, all things are used together for good, if not for ease, there's a lot of ways the story could have worked out that would have made things easier on Mordecai and Esther. Like, if God is really in control, why not just give Haman a brain aneurysm, right? That could have, like, just solved the whole problem. There's a lot of times I read stories, and I'm like, why didn't God use brain aneurysms more? <laughs> God could have made things easier on Mordecai and on Esther, but he doesn't. And he doesn't seem to do that in our lives very often either. As Romans 8, 28 says, he does use them for good, though. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And God is going to work all these things together for good in Mordecai's life, in Esther's life, and for the Jewish people. And in the same way, we can have hope that God will use our trials and pains for good as well. And for that reason, I think it's really valuable, maybe especially here on Pentecost, for us to take some time, or for you to take some time, to reflect on the way that God is working together things for good in your life. I'm glad we're talking about Esther on Pentecost because it's a time for us to reflect and look at the way that God has worked in our life and our church for the last year. And I would hope that maybe on this Pentecost day, if I can ask you to do something, it's that I would ask you to reflect on how has God been at work in my life this year? As I look back, how has the Spirit carried me to this place? How can I notice that God has been active in my situations, in my circumstances, in my character, in my relationships? How can I help notice how God has called me closer to himself through the year that just happened? You can notice God's providence in your life. There's a lot of ways, but I just want to point out a couple. One is just by paying active attention and talking to him about it as you journal. You might just say, take 15 minutes this afternoon, sometime this week, sit down, say, God, could you just 
bring to mind some ways that you have worked in my life this year. And you might, through talking to God about it, write down some ideas. And then the second way I'd encourage you to do is check that out with somebody else. Somebody else who knows you well and knows God well. Say, you know, I think this might be God in my life. Can you help me notice that? And they might point out some things of God's hand in your life that you don't notice as well. That's what Mordecai does for Esther when he tells her, it's for such a time as this that you've been brought into this place, right? Like, notice God's hand in your life, Esther. All right, let's get back to this story. At the end of chapter 3, Haman decides that his goal is to carry out this plan, but he doesn't quite have the authority to do it himself. So he tricks the foolish king. Remember, you can just sort of picture uh, the king of Persia in the story as kind of a drunken fool who does whatever anyone else tells him to do. He's sort of the the opposite of submissiveness here. Um, And Haman tricks him into passing this law that says, we can just destroy, anyone in the empire can destroy any Jewish person on this day that's coming up. And it's this dark moment that seems like all control has been lost in the world, like chaos is reigning. And in fact, there's this terrible scene where Haman takes some dice and says, we'll just roll the die and decide when the Jewish people are going to be destroyed. And he rolls the die and comes up with a date 11 months from now. And they say, all right, that'll be the purge day, right? Um, Where we're going to just destroy all the Jewish people throughout the empire. But as Proverbs 16 says, we may throw the dice but the Lord determines how they fall. And nothing ever gets out of God's hands. Word gets out over Haman's law, and Mordecai responds with this public display of protesting and mourning. And Mordecai quickly realizes that their best hope is through his passive, submissive, beautiful cousin, who's now the queen. And so Mordecai, in in chapter 4, calls for his cousin to respond. He tells her what's happened. He tells her the law that's passed and basically does the equivalent of, save us, Esther, you're our only hope. Um, Yeah, he sends R2-D2 in, the whole thing. That's pretty cool. It's it's in the Hebrew. You have to know Hebrew to see R2-D2 in here. (laughs) But he's asking her to do the very thing that she has built her political career on not doing, which is standing up for something, anything, right? You remember why her predecessor was deposed? Because she rebelled against the king. And rebelled against the king is a really loose translation of refused to show up when he was drunk, right? Like, she had done a lot less than show up and to tell him that he should reverse what he's done. Esther remembers. She tries to redirect Mordecai, saying there must be another way. But then there's this great response in Esther 4.13. Mordecai tells his cousin, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, I love that description of providence, right? God is going to carry out what he has set out to do, Esther. And he is going to save his people. And the question is not whether he's going to do it, but whether you're going to be part of it. Now, there's this temptation for Esther and for us to think, like, if I'm in a position of safety and of privilege and of comfort, I'm just going to stay back here. And if relief can come from another place, let it come from another place. But God calls Esther, through Mordecai's words here, you have been put in this position for this moment. This is why you were so beautiful from birth. This is why Vashti was deposed. This is why we're in Susa. This is why you were selected king for, for, as queen. For this moment, this is the time that God has put this together. Esther, you need to notice this is not just a circumstance. This is God's hand. And if you don't grab the ring, someone else will, and you'll miss 
This is the sort of language we need from people in our lives, don't we? Don't we need Mordecai's in our life who can tell us the hard truth? Can you imagine being told by your cousin, like, you need to risk your life. Like, you need to jump right now. Most of us don't have hard conversations like that. We don't have people willing to tell us things like that. We need Mordecai's in our life, and we need to be Mordecai's in our life, in the lives of others. I hope your life group is like that. I hope your community, your families, your spouse, your marriage is like that. Because this is the providence of God at work. Now, there's a, there's a deep irony in this part of the story that I just, I love and I can't think about enough about, which is the idea that, that Mordecai tells Esther, God has set all this up. God is in control of this moment. God has put you in this place. And the awareness of that, the awareness of God's control over the situation, flips Esther's whole experience of it. She goes from being this passive, submissive, docile, beautiful queen who when she realizes that God is in control, her entire disposition changes. And now she is in control, right? Because God is in control, she is willing to lead. Look at how she responds in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Do you hear that? Do you hear Esther's approach to life, right? Like, I am deeply reliant on God's leadership. And because I'm deeply reliant on God's leadership, I have the courage to take action to lead myself. Because I can trust that God is in control. There is space for me not to be passive and submissive, but to lead in the way that God has set before me. And then verse 17, I wish I would have included it in the reading because I think it's fascinating. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. What a different line than we've expect, experienced in Esther's story so far, right? All throughout this story, it's about Esther taking orders from other people. But in the providence of God, in trust that God has set up this moment before her, we see her taking action and leadership herself. Now who's ordering who around? Rather than uh, it being an action of passivity, it's an act of complementary leadership, where the rest of the book we see Esther and Mordecai leading together. And Esther bravely takes this step to participate in the plan of God. Esther, who's known for her submissiveness, is instead someone who's willing to take on great risks for the kingdom. She takes on the first risk by approaching the king when she's not supposed to, and then takes on a second greater risk in chapter 7, where she summons a banquet, and this really is Esther's banquet this time. Rather than being the, uh, the centerpiece, she's now the, the central actor. And she invites Haman and the king to come. And in this moment, she takes the great risk of saying to the king, the law you've passed is not only going to destroy me and my people, but it's going to destroy your reputation as well. It's a remarkable act of political gamesmanship on her part. And in it, she hangs Haman out to dry. The king gets incredibly angry because he's a fool, and fools get angry when they don't know why things are happening. And so he responds with this line of like, who would do this to me? And Esther responds in verse 6, a foe and an enemy that wicked Haman. Boo. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. After the king leaves the room, Haman tries to reassert his control. He grabs the queen. He grabs Esther, only for it to backfire, because the king re-enters the room, sees what's happening, and he immediately executes Haman for treason. Haman's foolish pride has come back on his own head. He's executed in the same way that he had planned to kill Mordecai. 
And Esther's faithfulness results in the deliverance of the Jewish people. Not because of the king of Persia. In fact, the king can't even stop his own orders. We find out in chapter 8 that the king can't reverse his own laws. So the best he can do is allow Mordecai to establish a counter-narrative that the Jewish people can protect themselves and that those who align with them will be protected as well. And it works to great success, showing that God is in control of everything. Not this foolish king of Persia, and certainly not chance, but in the providence of God, he defends his people, even in exile. And the last part of the book outlines how the people of Israel should always remember what's happened in Esther's story, and how it should be commemorated in the event of Purim, a holiday from year to year. The next time Purim will be celebrated, it'll be March 9th and 10th of 2020. Esther chose to participate in the purposes of God rather than reside in security and comfort of her her life as she thought she was safe. But instead, she was willing to step out, like the song said, called out among the waters. I wonder how you and I would respond if we were given that same opportunity. Do Do we recede into comfort or do we step out and follow where God leads us? When it is for such a time as this moment, are we willing to go? We face similar choices, maybe not on the same scale, maybe not the same type, but we face the same choices in small and large ways every day. Jesus talked about this when he talked about the parable of the talents, that we're all entrusted with something, some opportunity to invest for the kingdom of God, and we have a choice of whether we're going to take it or not. Whether that's a great thing, like, uh, like, or a life-altering thing, like becoming a missionary, or a small thing, like serving in your neighborhood this week, we all have God-ordered moments that are going to come in front of us in our lives. There are people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, in this church that are praying for something, and God's going to answer their prayer. And the question is whether he's going to use you or not, and that's up to you. He's going to answer it. It's a question of whether you get to be part of the blessing or not. I hope you'll choose to be like Esther, someone who embraces the God-ordered moments of your life, who doesn't recede into safety and security, but jumps when God tells us to. But even more than this story, encouraging us to be like Esther, it points us to Jesus. Because Esther is the one who points to the fact that it is in God-ordered, it is a God-ordered world that we reside in. That there's nothing that happens by chance. You know, just as Esther was put in this moment for such a time as this, just as she was put in a position of privilege leading to a moment of decision, so was Jesus. Just as Esther was faced with the question, Will she step up to defend and preserve her people, even if it means risking her life? Jesus was the one who was willing to step in and take on our sins uh, on himself. Just as Esther goes in front of the foreign ruler, knowing that she might perish as a result of doing so, Jesus, of course, is the better Esther, who goes in front of Pilate, the foreign ruler. And rather than being protected, and rather it coming out all roses, gives up his life, perishing not because of what he deserved, but because of what we deserved, and delivering not just the Jewish people, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation who would believe in him. Haman tried to use his power to destroy. Esther uses her power to save. But Jesus uses his power to intercede at the right hand of God for us forever. Esther's story points us to the fact that salvation comes through the one who is willing who is positioned and who has been brought to this place to save. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. A couple questions for you to pray about and reflect about this week. First, Esther is provoked to this moment of courage by the words of someone close to her, who loves her, who cares about her, and more than that, who knows God. Who are people like that in your life? 
Second question, um, where do you notice God preparing things ahead of you? Where do you notice God aligning things to call you out? Where is the risk that God's calling you to take for the benefit of other people? And then lastly, this is a little different, but Perm's coming up next March. Whether it's through Perm or another time, when do you want to set aside some time to reflect on God's faithfulness? Maybe it's today in Pentecost. Maybe you want to put March 9th and 10th on your calendar for next year and be able to, to remind yourself of God's faithfulness. But I'd encourage you to, to, uh, to set aside some intentional time each year to reflect on how God's brought you to this point. Let's close in prayer. God, we're so grateful for Esther. Uh, may we have the same courage and faith that she had. I confess that um, so often I choose comfort over following you. I choose safety over risk. Um, and I don't want to be like that, God. I want to be like Esther. And more, like that, more than that, I want to be like Jesus. We're so grateful that he chose courage over safety and that he chose sacrifice over comfort and that we are saved as a result of his sacrifice. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.